When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We've got episodes in the works on the Stranger Things phenomenon and Thor Love and Thunder in the current state of Taika Waititi. You can find it at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias. Producer Genevieve Kosky is currently studying corgis in the wild in their native Wales, which she recognizes as an obsession that may eventually take her life, but she says there's no way she'd rather go. <laughs> That's quite the coincidence, given the connections between this week's pairing, which kicks off with a Werner Herzog film about an exceptional obsessive who defined his life around a single unlikely purpose. Which really narrows down the field of Werner Herzog films when we're thinking about it, yeah? Uh, yes, he, he's... <laughs> uh, let, let's see, how many have we got there? Herzog films about obsessives. At least, what, 75%? That sounds about right. The pattern didn't really come clear for me, strangely enough, until Little Dieter Wants to Fly. Uh, and then I, I looked back and was like, how could I possibly have missed this? Like, I, I don't know if that's something that you guys have had happen with filmmakers where something comes along and it just snaps their entire body of work into place for you. But uh, do you have a, a particular favorite in the library of Werner Herzog obsessive films? I mean, I think we'd have to go back to, for me, back to an old uh, Next Picture Show episode uh, that we did on, on A Gear of the Wrath of God. I mean, I feel like that's sort of the gold standard of, of at least his fiction films on the subject. I mean, there are plenty of others but that one that that one that one stands out and also because it also kind of you know locks into his other major theme which is man versus nature and, and kind of the hubris of men who believe they can conquer nature and and uh you know they kind of always learn their their lesson whether in uh, fiction or reality yeah we're sure we're going to get into that what about you keith I mean, some ways, I think my favorite obsessive Werner Herzog film is Burden of Dreams, which he did not direct, but which is about him attempting to make Fitzcarraldo. Uh, but I, you mentioned Little Dieter Needs to Fly, and that's one that's really stuck with me among his uh, documentary films, because you do get a an obsessive character there. And it is like 
the more time you spend with him, the more complex the depiction gets. I mean, I like the narrative version of his his story with with Rescue Don, starring Christian Bale. But but uh, you know, I, I think the documentary has the edge just because it is uh, there's a little bit. I think even more mystery to it. I mean, I think in some ways it pairs really well with the movie we're going to talk about, but uh, I guess we can get into that some other time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, it's always going to be Fitzgeraldo. It's one of the common cases where I'll go to bat against uh, Scott Tobias about extra textualism. But the <laughs> the pairing of Fitzcarraldo and, and Burden of Dreams, where you have a movie about a man with an extremely unlikely obsession, and then the story of the filmmaking is a man, a story about a man with kind of the same obsession doing the same ridiculous thing as his character. It's just, it's too beautiful. Those films work together too well uh, to form kind of a, a portrait of somebody in a way obsessed with obsession like what a strange concept but that's kind of Werner Herzog yeah well and, and I think also the other example would be you know Apocalypse Now and, and you know Hearts of Darkness in terms of like you could really see one is a documentary about the making of the other but they're both kind of the same narrative I mean you could, you could make the argument that Hearts of Darkness is as much a Conrad adaptation as, as Apocalypse Now. To me, it's all text if, if you're just talking about watching one, one movie after another, Tasha. It's all text. Okay, that's fair. But the difference between text and extra textualism, when it, the extra textualism is a different movie's text, Scott, you're blowing my mind and we, we have to move on or I'll, okay, I'll explode. Yes. None of these movies are the movies that we're talking about today. Uh, Keith, will you want to set us up for the pairing that we're actually going to focus on? So this week, we're looking at two documentaries about people who spent their time in dangerous surroundings, telling the camera that the thing that they were studying was likely to kill them someday. And in both cases, it did, leaving behind a wealth of footage that could be read as irony, obliviousness, precognition, fatalism, or just acceptance, depending on how much you identify with the subject's pursuits and the way they go about them. First up is Herzog's 2005 movie, Grizzly Man, which has the German filmmaker editing together field footage shot by and starring activist Timothy Treadwell, who spent his summers illicitly living among wild bears and other animals in an Alaskan nature preserve. Treadwell was an eccentric who shot more than 100 hours of footage of himself, interacting with the bears and talking about how readily they could kill him, which one eventually did. Very much in a similar vein, Saradosa's new festival hit, Fire of Love, follows married volcanologists Maurice and Katja Croft, authors and filmmakers who traveled around the world studying volcanoes up close, and sometimes with a reckless disregard for their own safety, which they documented in their own extensive footage. So the Crafts also talked extensively and at length about how they expected to die in a volcano eruption eventually, which they did in 1991 during the eruption of Japan's Mount Unzen. So this week, we're comparing two movies about people who lived with the likelihood that the things they loved most would take their lives and who counted their obsessions as worth that cost. Stay tuned. Well, I'm here with one of my favorite bears. It's Mr. Chocolate. Hey, Mr. Chocolate. He's been with me for over a decade and he's been my good friend. Oh, he's a big bear. He's a big bear. A very big bear. Wow. When you spend a lot of time with bears day after day, there's a calling that makes you want to come in and, and spend more time in the world. Expedition 2001, I came here and protected the animals as best I could. In fact, I'm the only protection for these animals out here. Animals rule, Timothy conquered. He tended to want to become a bear. Most times I'm a kind warrior out here. Occasionally I am challenged. And in that case, the kind warrior must, must, must become a samurai. I think he had lost sight of what was really going on. Or he got what he was asking for, he got what he deserved. 
and try to do what I do, you will die. You will die here. We need more rain! Melissa is eating her babies! Uh, Timothy, I'm getting a bad feeling about you. I can smell death all over my fingers. I will die for these animals. I will die for these animals. I will die for these animals. Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man holds a special place in the heart of the next picture show. In 2015, your four co-hosts were all working at Pitchfork Media's film site, The Dissolve, which we're guessing you may have heard of if you're listening to this podcast. When that site was shut down, we had just launched into our collective discussion of Grizzly Man for the site's Movie of the Week feature. You can still see Scott's keynote essay on the film as one of the very last things we ever posted there. We had other writing on the movie locked and ready to go, but we never got to finish that conversation. So it seems fitting that we'd finally take it up now. Then and now, Grizzly Man is a fascinating artifact. It's one of the most perfect matings of documentarian and subject imaginable. In both fictional narratives and documentaries, Werner Herzog has always been drawn to stories about iconoclasts who break the rules and often break themselves in the dogged pursuit of some specific quest. He's similarly focused on the dangers of the natural world and what he sees as the chaos of the wild. Go back to his speech in Les Blank's terrific documentary Burden of Dreams about the making of Herzog's Fitzcarraldo, where Herzog faces the camera and talks about how his filmmaking partner and best fiend, Klaus Kinski, sees the jungle as erotic and fecund, but Herzog just sees it, as he puts it, as the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. You can find that entire speech on YouTube, and I highly recommend it just to hear him talk about how, quote, we, in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle, we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban novel. We have to become humble in front of this overwhelming misery and overwhelming fornication. Herzog references both this philosophy and, obliquely, his relationship with Kinski in Grizzly Man, as he talks about how Timothy Treadwell saw the world and how little Herzog can understand his point of view. From Herzog's perspective, the activist was proof that it's foolish to romanticize or trust nature. Treadwell certainly speaks humbly enough to the camera about how privileged and honored he felt to be living among bears after dubbing himself their self-appointed protector and guardian, a warden of nature. He talks with a kind of solemn amazement to a fox at one point, laying out his background of loneliness, disconnection, and alcohol abuse, and how his life in the wilds saved him from a different form of self-destruction. But in different moments, Timothy also boasts about that position, with all the self-righteous, aggressive swagger of an internet keyboard warrior making up an opposition he can tilt at and triumph over. A lot of the belligerence we rarely used to see anywhere but online surfaces as Timothy addresses his camera, yelling at enemies and predators he's largely made up to give his life purpose and focus. In those moments, Grizzly Man looks less like a portrait of a harmless part-time hermit and more like a portrait of mental illness given full reign. Apart from a short break for his own editorializing about nature, Herzog largely lets Treadwell's extensive footage speak for itself, and lets the audience sit with the contradictions of a man who could be gentle or furious, a swaggering self-identified hero, or a man who wanted to abdicate from humanity and disappear into the wilds. Herzog watches as Treadwell touches and scolds bears in the wild, interrogates himself and his flaws, or postures and builds himself up for the cameras as he lays out his goals and beliefs, and generally gives viewers a tour of a life of passionate pursuit of a cause. There are plenty of reasons for viewers to laugh at or boggle over Timothy Treadwell, from his awkward Prince Valiant haircut and high squeaky voice, to his gasping rapture over petting a pile of fresh bear poop, to the very notable contrast between his self-perception and his actual actions. 
It's also easy to visualize people gaping over the most lurid aspects of his story, especially the gory circumstances of his death, laid out in excruciating detail. But even so, Grizzly Man doesn't come across as a condescending freak show. It's one filmmaker speaking to another across a void of years about something they disagree about, but that both care about deeply. To put a word to it, it's something they both obsessed about, and something they each, in their own way, spent their lives on chasing. Hey, who's stealing that hat? Let me see that hat. Ghost, I want that hat. Man, ghost is bad. Ghost, what are you doing with that hat? Ghost, that hat is a very important hat. Drop it. Thanks. Oh, God damn it. I can't believe this. Ghost! Ghost, where's that fucking hat? So I mentioned earlier, or really I had Keith mention in the script, that there are a whole lot of ways to read this story. And it really just depends on how you take Timothy Treadwell, how seriously you take his commentary about his impending death, how seriously you think he took the the possibility of the bears killing him, which sometimes he seems to believe is true. And sometimes it kind of seems like he's he's self-aggrandizing a little bit, like like making up drama to make things more exciting. I think that shifts throughout the film, which makes sense since he's shooting this over the course of more than a decade. But like as you're watching it all at once, you get this sort of jumbled portrait that presents a lot of different aspects of this man. How do you end up taking him? Like what's what's your takeaway about who Timothy Treadwell was? I don't know that he ever actually thought he'd die at the hands, pause. Teeth of a bear. I mean, I, 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 I really do think self-aggrandizing is a way to describe. You know, I really I, when he does talk about that, that is how I think of it. Well, you know, let, let me put it a different way. I don't think anything he says on camera about expecting to die or, or, or understanding he might die by you know a bear attack. I never read that as, as at face value. But maybe, maybe I'm off off there as well. I mean, he definitely is someone. I don't know. See, I don't know if he necessarily has a self-destructive. He's obviously a self-destructive person from the outside, but I don't know if he's driven by self-destructive impulses. But I'm really curious as to how everyone else reads Treadwell. He's a curious character. I mean, all, all this talk about his feelings of loneliness, his alcohol abuse. I mean, there is a sense of him needing to be disconnected from the rest of society. That was That's as a kind of a motivating impulse. And I think there is also a sense that a lot of people have, you know, we saw it, see it in, in um, a story like in, into the wild too, about like needing to, to become more in touch with nature, like, like just rejecting modern society and all, all of its trappings and all of its disappointments and trying to find yourself in this dangerous and, and, and challenging environment. And in Treadwell's case, you know, finding friends even if even if those friends are, are these anthropomorphized bears that he's named you know mr chocolate and <laughs> you know other, other types of names so um so there's that in terms of the actual risk and accepting the risk i think he i mean i think he understands the risks i don't necessarily know if he expects to live forever and he, and he certainly talks about it being an okay way for him to go if he has to go for him to die doing this thing that he's passionate about and being around these bears that he cares about. And I think that, and I think we also see a pretty good sense from him about how to survive around bears. I mean, I mean, he's obviously taking some huge risks in terms of um, his engagement with these, these animals, but he also has a good sense of their body language and their individual 
quirks and personalities and you know he it's it goes beyond just naming them i think he does he actually does have a feel for them just as the way that we might have a feel for a cat or something like that i mean we know we we encounter a cat we know what cats are going to be are going to be friendly cats and we know which ones are going to be big jerks and uh <laughs> and which ones are going to kind of be in between and i think i think by immersing himself as much as he does in, in nature i think he under he, he has a you know ability to read that body language and uh, ultimately got himself in a position where um yeah that wasn't possible where it was just too late in the in the summer that where you know that this there was just a hungry bear who had nothing to eat and he and his uh, girlfriend presented themselves as food yeah the fact i mean we we get this in fact from uh one of the interviewees in the film like the feeling that if he did want to die which i'm i'm actually with keith i i'm not sure that i believe he ever thought that he was going to die he talks about it a lot but I think that he was attracted to the idea that these animals were very dangerous and that like he alone understood them enough to, to walk among them. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure that I believe that he fully believed that he would uh, he would be killed by a bear. But at the same time, I think he definitely romanticized to that idea that he he liked the idea of somehow being subsumed uh, within nature or he maybe he liked the idea that he liked the idea like he he saw it as a romantic notion um, whether he actually did want to, <laughs> to die or not the idea of like going down under a bear just seems i guess more romantic than you know dying at age 98 uh, in a chair in front of the television set after like two decades of watching tv alone so the the problem with all of this being is the the interview he says in the movie that he took somebody else with him, uh, you know, that he yeah. brought somebody else to this story who was afraid of bears, who didn't necessarily want to be there, who talked about leaving and the danger that they were in. Herzog says in the movie that inexplicably she stayed with him. And I find that one of the oddest statements in the movie. Like, why did she stay in a place that she didn't have a convenient out from in a, a wild area that she didn't necessarily know her way around? And mm. why didn't she abandon him to the, you know, to what Grizzly she felt mates. was a dis... <laughs> to to what she felt was a dangerous situation like none of that seems very inexplicable to me but the fact of the matter is we get a lot of him telling the camera like if this is how i die it's it's a noble way to go and we have no idea how she felt about it but it's it's pretty clear that she did not volunteer to go this way yeah so that's the most tragic aspect of this because i think you know however delusional or not delusional you, you take timothy dreadwell's acceptance of the risks to be um, or sincerely, you, you take his acceptance of the risk to be, he still took them on it, it willingly and, you know, summer after summer after summer. You know, I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, she's victimized by that, his naivete and his hubris and, and, um, and she doesn't have, uh, she has no way out as, as you, you say, Tasha. So, so it's kind of inexcusable. I mean, that's the, that's the one really enraging, I guess, aspect of what he's done here. I mean, the other, other you could sort of, ding him for all kinds of different things i mean this is a very flawed and and misguided human being but that part of it uh, of of that that second life that gets taken is uh that's hard to uh process 
And it's coupled with Herzog's observation that the footage he's taking of himself is presenting himself as being completely alone in the wilderness, so like for for whatever for whatever purpose he's. And and, and that footage is fascinating too because it is, you know, he's t- taking B roll of himself for what purpose? You know, a stint, I mean, I think he's maybe kind of fashioning himself as as a crocodile hunter, but but for bears. Yeah. Um, but the monologues are so unhinged to go from like, okay, I can actually see this maybe being a cut rate discovery channel show versus this is the, the unhinged ravings of someone with some serious problems as well. And, and I don't know that he really had whatever sense he had of like, what would actually be appealing on television. If he even got that far in his thinking, you know, he, he kind of lost track of that at some point. I mean, I think that that is a one of the one of the problems, I guess, with condensing this all down into a two hour film is that you definitely lose track of the the scope of this movie. You know, the fact that he shot all this stuff over the course of, of 13 years. It's not very surprising that in one scene he would be narrating his life story to a fox because he doesn't have anybody else to talk to. And he is there alone. And the next year uh, he's got a woman who came out there with him, but he's so invested in the I'm so alone narrative that he like tells everybody to, to get off screen and not help him. I'm not clear on who the woman is that he says, no, don't move that. I've, I've got to do it all alone, you know, because part of the narrative that I'm alone. She's a, a short haired woman who appears to be there with the plane on the same trip as Amy, but it's it's not actually Amy herself. But at the same time, you can excuse an awful lot of the the veering back and forth between, you know, I am just a humble child of nature and I am a mighty tough echo warrior who can walk among bears as, you know, the back and forth of somebody like developing his his mythos uh, to himself over the course of, of well over a decade. But it's much harder to reconcile the scene where he literally tells somebody, no, you have to be off camera so I can pretend I'm alone. And then like looks sincerely and authentically into the camera and talks about how lonely he is being there all alone, all by himself alone. I mean, he says the word alone like eight times Mm -hmm. and you know, it's all a lie, which really raises the question of like how much of the rest of this, I think in the most positive way, we want to see him as, you know, a kind soul who was maybe a little bit delusional, but we have like evidence on screen of him just like outright lying in order to to get across this image that he wanted to sell to somebody. Well, I mean, isn't that part of isn't that documentary filmmaking, though? <laughs> you know, right. To kind of to kind of present a, a narrative that isn't always truthful, that you're, you're, you are making a movie. And uh, and so the, in the, the premise of the movie is that you have this eco warrior who's out there to protect the bears and he's 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 all alone and he's got the his enemies are the poachers and the haters or whatever and and um uh you know if you if you allow anybody else into that frame it kind of spoils the narrative so it's something to kind of keep in mind you know that i mean that, that's one of the things i really love about this movie i think this movie is one of the greatest documentaries ever made and you know one of the things i think it, it's it's really interesting about it is that it kind of for me recalls you know something like nanook of the north and that and that nanook of the north is kind of you know staged you know and it, it, it was a, it, not just staged but also represented a collaboration between a filmmaker and a subject. And even though Timothy Treadwell is not alive for this particular collaboration with Herzog, 
there is the film develops this extraordinary dialogue between the two people that there's so much more complex than I think maybe you, you even might think it would be go, going in given their opposing understanding, I guess, of, of nature. I love the passage where he's talking about Treadwell as a filmmaker too. And like the magic intruding on the, on the, on the frame when the foxes run by that it's a real kind of admiration there, both for how he set it up, but also for, for Treadwell's instincts to let the camera play out and, and, and capture like sort of an unplanned moment. And, and, you know, that seems, you know, we, we talk about documentaries being, you know, their narrative films in their own way, but, but it seems like a really sincere moment of, of admiration to me. Yeah, for sure. And it comes, you know, just as he's kind of tweaking him a little bit for consciously framing himself, like trying to frame himself as uh, just like an authentic person speaking his heart directly to the camera, but then taking several takes where he kind of mm-hmm. takes different tones with the, the same speech and approaches it in different ways. So, you know, there's there's definitely... I feel like almost a grudging admiration of him as a, a self-mythologizer, followed by an authentic uh, appreciation and, and admiration for him as an inadvertent documentarian of animals. I mean, boy, there's there's a lot to unpack in this movie. Um, I agree with Scott that it's, it's just a, a brilliant and, and fascinating uh, document. But just on top of everything that it says about human nature and uh, actual nature, it's just a really fascinating documentary of bears, of the wild, of, uh, you know, foxes curiosity. Like, there's just some really yeah. great nature photography here. Uh, yeah, if, you, if, you, if he's willing to take those risks, he's willing to, to get as close as he does and, and be as skilled as he is with the with the camera. There's just no replacement for it. I mean, like, you know, I think Herzog says something about uh, when he's, you know, in that little almost like a montage where he's sort of appreciating the filmmaking aspect. He's like Hollywood or whatever with a union crew is not going to be able to get that kind of stuff. And, I, and even Herzog himself is like, we've seen what a we've seen the burden of dreams for him. We've seen how the labor involved in, in getting images that he wants to be as natural and authentic as possible. I mean, there's, you know, and, and uh, you know, I think for Treadwell to achieve those effects to be able to give you a slice of nature and give you moments of magic you know on his own you know without all this apparatus around him i mean i think that's something that herzog genuinely appreciates you know about him just as an artist well part of that sort of conversation between filmmakers uh, over time and and part of the framing of the documentary as you're talking about it uh scott is that nunuka the north uh, quality where there are things here that are being staged i want to talk about the segments of the film that herzog seems to set up uh for the the purpose of this documentary and how they play out and how it kind of changes the nature of something that that could have just been about Timothy, but ends up being more about uh, the people around him in his life. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about that in just a moment. So there are segments here that Herzog sets up, and to my mind, at least, they're they're one of the bigger flaws of the film. Like some of them, like his his interview with uh, 
another pilot who basically just looks baffled at the entire thing and, and just says, you know, he's an idiot who got what was coming to him. It's a pity he took somebody down with him. Those kind of interviews, I think, really help you put some of this in perspective. But the sequence where uh, the coroner that examined Timothy and Amy's bodies hands over Timothy's watch to a woman who was his ex-girlfriend, like that felt very artificial and staged to me and a little like one of them wanted to be there and one of them didn't. And the later sequence of, of scattering Timothy's ashes just felt very much like something Herzog set up because he thought it would be a good part of the movie, but that everybody there seemed a little awkward about. How do these kinds of like insert segments work for you in the documentary? Maybe it's a mixed bag, I guess. I mean, I mean, I, I can get where, where you can see almost kind of a reality TV aspect of that. of just like, okay, I'm going to set up this emotional moment where the coroner is going to give Jewel the watch and it's still working and and we're going to get that reaction but um but at the same time i mean you know i i I like that herzog is thinking about not just interacting with the footage but also giving you the 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 broader picture and in in making his own footage and giving you his own um you know building building off of what treadwell left behind and i think it's just a matter of how you respond to certain scenes because of course you know the big payoff with jewel when 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 he has the recording um, that that happened when uh, Timothy and his, his girlfriend were killed. You know the very famous. You must not listen to this, or I can't. I I'm gonna mangle the quote, but that's an incredible moment. I mean, that's just that's like mm-hmm. one of the real. That's an indelible mo- moment in the film. That's it's one that uh, may be the most kind of quoted part of the movie. And that one is also you know staged in in, in its way. It just you know, but it just it, it gives you the. It's such a powerful scene and 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 also just gives you a sense of of um you know Herzog understanding his own power and presence um in front of the camera i think i think he's gotten to be so confident you know in in, in his own you know i mean maybe he's he's playing a character himself the warner Herzog character maybe that's somebody and i know that people have problems with that uh, occasionally but i think it's so effective here I have such mixed feelings on that sequence. I think it's effective. I think it's memorable. I I think that it's very natural for that to really stand out for people. But to me, there is something so gimmicky about him inserting himself in, in front of the camera to listen to this tape that just really does feel like the equivalent of people slowing down to to gawk out of the windows of their car at a really gory car crash. And then to make a big point of like you, the audience can't be trusted with this. Like Jewel, you should never experience this, but I'm going to experience it for myself for you. It just, it strikes me as very unsavory in a lot of ways. It is staged and I get that feeling, but I also feel like it is a way to acknowledge that this recording exists Mm -hmm. and which, you know, it is evidence that has to be reckoned with. And also to make you consider how Jewel must feel. I mean, how, how you know, what it must, you know, must be. The, the whole, like, you know, this will, this will haunt you forever unless you destroy it. I mean, yeah, it's overstated, but is it wrong? You know, is it incorrect in any way? And this was, you know, something in her possession. Like, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I think, you know, and, and I, but I think once you kind of, get over the hump with that it's still it's such an amazing moment 
I yeah, wonder if it just might have landed differently, given given that the coroner, which my God, the coroner is such a character. You know, he huh. he alone feels kind of natural on the screen as he's describing like a, a, an awful lot of the detail that we get about the truly horrific grisly messy way these two people died and what happened to their bodies comes from him being a little gushy about it quite frankly it's very clear to me like i believe that he's listened to the tape he describes it in detail and i feel like that might have been enough you know he the fact that we we know that it exists we know that somebody's listened to it he tells us in detail what happens on it. I don't think we need to watch somebody listening to it on our behalf. I, I just think ultimately that's a little too much. I, and I, then, love, I love that guy. I want Herzog to go back and just have him tell <laughs> gory Alaska coroner stories for an hour and a half and make a film about that. He strikes me as someone who's waited his whole life for someone to say, describe, you know, the goriest thing you can about what, what you've encountered in the course of your job. And, and, and it's just, you know, leaning into it with all his might. I just, I think it's to me again, it's just on maybe on a filmmaking level, I, I find the staging very dramatic, and, it, and it's dramatic in, in almost the same way that, that the use of kind of off-screen space is in a fictional film, where, where, where you know, you're not going to hear the footage, you're not going to hear this audio, and you're certainly not seeing the footage. And so seeing his reaction, you know, hearing him tell Jewel she's, she's not going to want to hear this or she's going to destroy it, et cetera. I mean, that just kind of like, that paints such a, vivid picture that feels that it's such a powerful moment for us to even like process without b being exposed to the to you know the actual thing so i i don't know to me that's that's about as good a way of about as effective way of revealing or or, or dealing with this footage that is quite extraordinary i mean that it exists that he, he was so comprehensive in his documentation that he actually has sound of his death that's an incredible re revelation that you have to contend with and i feel like this uh, is the you know about as good a way to do it as any i think i mean if it had been up to me if if Werner had called me up and said you know you've never made a film but i really need your opinion on this uh i think i maybe would have i again i would have been fine with just the coroner's description which is thorough and and vivid and naturalistic and as keith says he's he kind of semi the star of the show or maybe I would have just liked more Herzog about it. Instead of him having his back to the camera and and talking to Jewel about how she should never experience what he's experiencing, one of the things that fascinates me about this movie is his it, talking at the end about how he feels about about bears and how different it is from what what Timothy feels and how he's like searching the expression on this bear's face, like looking for any humanity and understanding oh, and, yeah. and not getting it like. I think Herzog being such a character in his own narratives, being such a, a force of nature and a personality in so many ways, I would have liked to hear him talk to us about what the experience was like of knowing that this artifact was such a horrible thing and yet not being able to turn away. Because I think that's a very human response. I applaud Jules' uh, self-control in never listening to that tape. I don't think I would have been able to stop myself from it. And I, in fact, oh, just, I, I definitely could have. <laughs> <laughs> I would not listen to that if, any, if that happened to, to someone I cared. There's no chance, no chance. 
I'm I'm going to say that based on things that have happened in my actual real life, uh, I would not so would have been able. To it. Yeah, I would I okay. would listen to it and then I would regret it. And the okay, fact that well. she is able to not, I think, is really fascinating. And the fact that Werner both feels drawn to do it and then immediately says, like, this is horrible and you shouldn't listen to it. I, I think all of that is just very human in a really interesting way. But I would have liked to have seen him like reckon a little more with it and with us in terms of that human experience of of seeking out something horrible and and not being able to keep yourself away from it. You know, he's just he's so articulate and thoughtful about the human experience and his very specific philosophy on it. I, I always want more, I guess, of him. Yeah. Tasha, you mentioned this speech at the end from Herzog and I just I have to I, I, I that was something I, I quoted in the piece that I wrote and I want to quote it here because it's just it's one of the great pieces of narrations he, he's done so I'm going to do it all right do it he goes I'm not going to do it in his voice though <laughs> I'm going to spare you that what haunts me is that in all the faces of all the bears uh, Treadwell filmed I discover no kinship no understanding no mercy I see only the overwhelming indifference of nature to me There's no such thing as a secret world of the bears. And this blank stare speaks only of a half-bored interest in food. But for Timothy Treadwell, this bear was a friend, a savior. And that's that's beautiful. I mean, like that that, the 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 line, the phrase half-bored interest in food, that's like my number one takeaway from the (laughs) entire movie. I just I I always think about that when when I think about just that instinct to kill an animal has, or at least animals that eat other animals. That just that's brilliant. I mean, that's just a beautiful, you know, and true thing to say, in my opinion. I think also the weird thing about this movie is there's kind of a Kuleshov effect to the bear footage because when Treadwell talks about, you know, Aunt Lydia or you know, Patty the dancing bear or whatever he calls these things, <laughs> you know, you can you can kind of his his anthropomorphism is kind of infectious, and when. Herzog is like, you know, sternly and Tony on about like, like you say about the half board interest in food, the phrase that will never leave me uh, when I think about animals uh, sometimes is, is, you know, that's what you see. You see as he sees it it's as, as this, un, you know, this unpitying force that lives to, you know, lives to survive. It doesn't have any, any of the, the emotions and, and gentleness and human qualities that, that Treadwell ascribes uh, to it. It's, 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 it's Part of what makes the film so fascinating to me. Yeah, I I think the contrast specifically between Treadwell's perspective and Herzog's perspective is one of the things that makes this movie so indelible, uh, so yes. memorable. The f- and the fact that Herzog is so outspoken about it, which, you know, there's a very reasonable desire for documentarians to to not editorialize and to like let their subjects have, have free reign to the degree that that's possible, which, you know. It yeah. isn't exactly. There's no such thing. It is an objective documentary. No. But, you know, there is there is still a difference between a documentarian who ha- has written a script and narrates how they want you to feel about a movie and one who doesn't. And mostly I'm not in favor of that kind of thing, except as like adding information and context. But here it's just because Herzog is expressing something that he expresses in such profound and interesting ways and he's at such odds with his subject here. I, I find that contrast fascinating. But that all said, he tells us what this story is about for him, 
But I think we have the the luxury of standing back and having a bigger opinion that's about what this film is, not just through his perspective, but through kind of his and Timothy's perspectives combined. What do you think this movie is ultimately about? I mean, I kind of ultimately find Herzog's perspective really persuasive. And I think it really matches up however coincidentally to the the perspective expressed by the the I'm looking for his name Sven Harkinson the Alutique Museum director the indigenous uh, museum director who talks about how in his culture there is a line between humanity and the animals and you don't cross that you know there is it's an invisible line you have to respect and if you don't it's going to be you know there's going to be issues I think it's a it's a really a neat instance of folklore and science matching up perfectly to tell to issue the same warning about where we stand and, and having a certain amount of humility before nature, which I think is also a phrase that Herzog uses. And I think Treadwell's story for all the complexities within it and the fascination of his character is ultimately a warning along those lines. It, it is. It doesn't end well because it was never going to end well because you can't really blur those two worlds and expect good results. Yeah, but I think one of the things that saves the film that makes it so interesting is that it, it, it's not a judgmental film. True. It, you know, and, and there's a lot of there are obviously you know this this giant point of contrast between Treadwell and Herzog in terms of their understanding of nature and of interacting with the bears and, and this line you don't cross, et cetera. I mean, that, that is made perfectly clear, but Herzog is not going to be the, you know, the, the angry editorial r- writer saying that this guy had it common and we mm. should be releasing bears on the Berkeley campus and whatever <laughs> it is, all, all these other, uh, you know, people are going to write that, that. I think that's something that he rejects as well. You know, I think we can see in the, in the context of the, of Herzog's career too, you know, an, an attraction to these types of characters because Herzog himself is that, is that type of character is somebody who has, you know, a, a fascination and, and at times a, a repulsion, I guess, with, with, of nature, but a complex relationship with it and a, a, a an eagerness to push the the limits and, and to go to extremes and, and to, you know, a, attempt something, you know, dangerous um, in, in order to uh, scratch some sort of itch, you know, it's an artistic itch on his part. Maybe it's some, it's some other kind of itch for, uh, for Treadwell, but I think there's um, the amount that they have in common is what gives this film that that all the, the all those layers of the you know, that complexity of just because you do feel like this is a a very unique dialogue between two men who do have uh, who have enough in common to where it can be a, a uh, respectful disagreement <laughs> about <laughs> about their views of of man's interaction with nature and, and and with the wild. Yeah, and I think that Herzog's just like established philosophies and and interests and his career up to this point let him make this movie in a way possibly nobody else could have because there are so many filmmakers who either through their own personas or through like the the anonymity of you know being being less known as people or less insertive could have made something very similar to this film and it would have come across as exploitative it could have come across as like look at and and laugh at the freak there are some very 
comedic things about Timothy Treadwell. Like there's some very sad stuff in him talking about his background. There's there's some sad stuff in the framing. Uh, but there's also him, you know, running through the bush with a camera, swearing at a fox cub who just ran off with his hat. You know, there's <laughs> uh-huh. there's the sequence where he talks at great length about how like he's a, a mighty eco warrior, which is pretty laughable in some ways. There are definite moments of humor in all of this and it could have very well been presented as like look at this dumb rube who made up a ninja warrior character for himself who got to hang out with bears and then eventually the bears got fed up and and ate him and there's just no risk of seeing it this way because we know herzog's perspective like so clearly he doesn't have to contextualize like by by telling us how he thinks of Treadwell and how we should think of Treadwell, because we already know that like we we know that he isn't being like dismissive or laughing at this guy, that he's fascinated with them, because that's what everything about his career says today. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a, a good point. I mean, he's definitely someone who as much as he may disagree with uh, some of his subjects, both documentary and, and, and narrative, like, you know, he, he, it's kind of a game recognized game there. If he doesn't share their <laughs> obsessions, he shares, shares their obsessiveness and that, that kind of lends a certain amount of sympathy to, you know, even a character like, like Treadwell, who is, you know, because of his tragic end, because he took someone else with him because of his, you know, he, we see people who love him, but he's obviously also for many a, a thorny personality to deal with. I think the sympathy ex- extended is kind of crucial to why this film works. I think you're right about that. One of the aspects of people who love him is uh, that sequence with his parents, which I didn't bring up when I was talking about like stilted framing stuff, because I think the stiltedness in that case just comes from who his parents are rather than any kind of artificiality in the setting. Like it's a very documentary tactic. You take two people who had a very personal connection to the story and sit them down on a couch in their home and, and ask them questions. But those two are so rigid and, and his father with his weird popped up like sunglasses mounted on his glasses. So it looks like he has giant Groucho eyebrows uh, just talking <laughs> in this like, preemptory stentorian voice about how uh you know he came home and he tried to smoke reefer in the house and we put the kibosh on that like that above everything else i think maybe gives me a sympathy for who treadwell became and why he found i guess uh, animals and in nature more alluring than humanity like if he if he grew up in such like a rigid and judgmental household where everything just seemed so, you know, f- cluttered yet fussy. I, I, I can definitely see him just seeing the wilds as accessible and freeing in a way. I, I feel like Herzog doesn't spell that point out, but it's, it's just it's there on screen in a kind of creepy way. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, and it, and it kind of you know it, it explains. I mean. Y- you know his sense of acceptance anyway in this environment as well um you know he, it may, that that acceptance of course was conditional and and ultimately not uh and ultimately false um but um but it, it, it you, know, you can see why he would would flee to this place where where he could exercise a certain amount of control where he could invent you know a narrative around himself a, a narrative that maybe false in a lot of different ways false in terms of his own sense of self uh, false in terms of his perception of of who these animals 
are and 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 what 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 their potential was going to be and what they what they might do um all that stuff might, might be false but but he's still controlling that that narrative and and you know when you live in a home like that and, and when you've you've been batted around to different jobs and you've had a lot of setbacks this is a this is kind of a chance to to throw all of that away and uh and be take some control over your over your life to have some purpose and that really have nobody to tell you you can't do it you know until again the end when some when a bear definitely says he can't do it but that but uh yeah well i guess to close out like you you just specifically touched on his kind of creating uh false narratives around himself and the ways that he does that to me are really kind of ironically funny or, or dryly funny or mordantly funny. The the contrast between him telling us over and over into the camera that he's like the protector of nature, that he's the guardian of these bears, that yeah. he's the one that makes them safe, even though they're not really under threat, they're living in a nature preserve. And then the one time we actually see him interact with uh, people who are very slightly menacing the bears by both taking pictures of them and trying to keep them at, at the distance. He hides in a bush and, and complains to the camera. Like there is no valiant guardianshiping of the bears. He doesn't even come out and say like, hey, look, you can't do that. And you're on film. Go away. He hides in the brush and, and whines about it. And it's just it's such there's such a contrast there between how we know he sees himself and how he presents himself and what he actually does. And I find it kind of funny. I, I find it kind of laughable. But at the same time, how do you engage with the amount of humor uh, and, and to some degree, the amount of like, I want to say condescension of laughing at this guy who was so much in his own head, who was arguably mentally ill, who did uh, cause his own death and, and somebody else's. How do you reckon with the humor in this film? I mean, I never really see it as condescending when in, in situations like that, that because I feel like it would be more of a problem if we if, if we didn't get the fullness of a person, if, if, if it were just if our impression of Timothy Treadwell were just of a delusional buffoon. And I don't think I don't think the film the film is so multidimensional and, and I think gives so much thought and attention to all aspects of his personality, including the ridiculous aspects that I think we can can look at those look at that footage and 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 laugh at it or, or look at some footage and say well he's being that you know the idea that he's a protector of these animals is a little s silly and and self-evidently not true that just adds to the portrait in my opinion yeah i think i think that's fair i mean it is you maybe you find yourself laughing at him one moment but i think there's definitely more going on here i think you're left with a feeling about this is a haunting character in some ways and and a singular character and and not someone you would have maybe not someone you would choose to spend time with voluntarily in person but who's who's a fascinating subject for this film so you know i i i don't feel i mean there are many ways this film could have gone wrong and could in being super condescending is definitely one of them but i i, I think it's uh it, it walks a, a pretty good line on that on that yeah, just to clarify, I don't mean Herzog is being condescending. I mean I feel a little condescending mm. laughing at him. It, it mm. sounds like neither of you, neither of you had that problem. Maybe it's just oh, me judging no. myself. I love, I love laughing at people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't. It's um. I mean, again, I, I feel like I, I, you know, the film gets you in a place where you're, you know, sharing 
in Herzog's admiration of certain qualities that Treadwell had. You know, and I think if he didn't, if you just saw him as a goofball and an, an idiot and a tree hugging, you know, buffoon who who got what he deserved, then I think we'd, you know, that that discomfort over over the laugh over the uh, funnier scenes of the movie would be felt a little more acutely. But uh, I don't, I don't feel that way. Well, that's something we definitely love to hear about uh, from readers in terms of whether you whether you do find a humor in this movie, whether you find a discomfort in finding a humor in this movie, um, whether you think Tim- Timothy Treadwell was a buffoon and you feel a need to uh, write angry letters to the Grizzly Project, letting them letting them know that they should all die in a fire, as apparently some people who didn't know about the Internet felt a need to do. Would like to hear your thoughts on our discussion of Grizzly Man and uh, anything else you want to talk about in the world of film. You can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you'd like to share responses with us. We'll be back in a moment with some other feedback we've gotten about the podcast and with a preview of our next episode. Now we're back with feedback. When we migrated this segment over to Patreon, the feedback letters dried up, but now they're slowly starting to roll in again. Uh, We could always use more. So if you've always wanted to hear us talk about you on the show, this is your moment. Email us comments or questions at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Listener Josh responded to our previous pairing of Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge and Elvis with a thought about how Luhrmann uses anachronistic songs for mood. Uh, Scott, can you read this one for us? Sure. I'm an English teacher, which means I end up using clips from Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby often in class. My gut feeling is that the first half of the movie is really good, and the second half really isn't. That's mainly because Luhrmann and company treat Gatsby like a love story, instead of a story about the way our desire for something often has nothing to do with the thing itself, and how dreams in America are often held back by societal factors. My students always comment on the incongruity of the Jay-Z slash Kanye song that kicks off the action, followed by a slew of modern music. But we end up talking about how the choice to modernize the music does a great job of conveying how that time period felt more than period-appropriate music would. If you used 1920s jazz for the film, it would feel old-fashioned and staid. But the characters of the book were rebelling and listening to the music of young people, and to be sure, treating black music like a spot for their culture tourism. And the film conveys a modern version of that. Does it always work? No, not really. But it feels exhilarating in a way that a more conventional choice wouldn't do. And I like that. It's a lot like how Deadwood apparently originally planned on using period-appropriate swearing, but everyone, quote, sounded like Yosemite Sam, unquote. And that to convey the transgressive, society-rejecting feel of the language, you had to update it to convey the feel. Anyway, I run hot and cold on Baz Luhrmann, but I do think Genevieve's point gets to what he does well at his best. To hell with the reality of the situation, let's talk about how it feels. You know, I like this letter a lot. <laughs> I think that really, I think that's a really good point that I didn't really, that I didn't consider in terms of, because I think you can come up with a lot of cynical reasons why why Lerman would, would incorporate, you know, anachronistic music into into moments from the past about needing to just make something boring and old you know cool for the kids to get into and and uh but i think but this is exactly right i think this is a much better way of putting it about just like okay let's what the project is we have to make these connections between you know elvis and the music of today we have to convey the urgency 
of what he meant then of of the fact that he was young and and dangerous and and you know uh, appealed to people in a very you know purient and and you know exciting way bring those sort of modern touches to it on both in the music and in the imagery makes a lot of sense and it, and it kind of does its job yeah, yeah with with the the proviso that i think that you could stage it in a way that would make the period jazz seem transgressive and transgressive and exciting because it was um you don't have to and i think lerman lerman's choice certainly works too i think i, I think it's a really uh, good observation you know it's interesting i haven't thought about the garrett gatsby much since seeing it because i you know i had left with some pretty mixed feelings with it but i was i guess in some ways it kind of shares thing with me for elvis where, where I think the buildup in Gatsby is pretty thrilling and then the handling of the tragedy as, as our writer points out less so. And I think that's true of Elvis as well, but the tragedy in, in Moulin Rouge, not to just, you know, reopen the whole Moulin Rouge Elvis episode again, but, but, um, it hits really hard. So I, I, it's not that he can't do it. It's just, but he just does. I'm not sure he does it all that well in those two films. Yeah, I'm, I'm there with you. I'm, I'm back and forth because I think that the idea of using you know, contemporary groundbreaking music to convey the the sense of of shock and the lack of the familiar is a really good one. But I don't think it explains, for instance, uh, Richard Roxburgh running around to to Roxanne uh, being like roared at him. Uh, <sighs> there are some of those songs that, that feel a little more in in both cases, in both of those movies, I think that feel a little more jukebox musical, uh, like checking off hits than they necessarily feel like they're addressing a mood or a moment. I, I think maybe the music in Romeo plus Juliet does that in an anachronistic but uh, emotional way that that brings across what these two kids, two crazy kids in love are supposed to be feeling than it does um, in in some of the especially the more montage uh, kind of Lerman musical experiences, he has a way of running a whole bunch of different sources together into a kind of musical melange where you end up looking at the credits for the the music in the movie and thinking, what, what the hell was that? I never heard that. <laughs> and it's because it's, you know, drew a, a single like line or note or bass line or something from from deep in a song. I think that he like loves music and he loves mess and he loves maximalism. And that sometimes, as uh, Josh says here, it's to like really purposeful and useful effect. And uh, sometimes it just kind of feels like he's trying to cram the screen uh, with with everything he can visually and musically. Uh, so, you know, you, your mileage may vary on any specific given example. But I I like this take on Gatsby a lot. I'm a Scott. I like this letter. Yeah. I like this thought. Yeah, I I gotta say, uh, Josh sounds like a very good uh, teacher. Yeah, <laughs> I want to be in this class. Just based, just based on the content of this letter, it's just like I can see a lot of really good uh, class discussions being built around that. Both, you know, the Great Gatsby and the and you know the merits or, or lack thereof of Lerman's interpretation. So, uh, I think he's got some uh, fortunate students. Yeah, and of course, as uh, you know, people who think a lot uh, seriously about film and and kind of trying to mentally take it apart, we're always up for stories about uh, classroom experiences where you're teaching people to think about why they're seeing what they're seeing, why they're hearing what they're hearing, uh, instead of just like taking it in passively. So, uh, yeah, Josh, we all want to be in your class. Um, yeah. Congratulations, we think you're a good teacher. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts on this conversation. This, again, is a good uh, chance if you've if you've always wanted us to hear you praise how you do your job and tell you that you're great at your work, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to send us feedback. Feel free to address the second half of our Baz Luhrmann pairing or what we're talking about here or anything else in the world of film you'd like us to discuss. Email us once more at comments at nextpictureshow.net. So that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at a different fatal attraction to nature in Fire of Love, a movie that feels like it used Grizzly Man as a stencil, then spent a whole bunch of time scribbling artistically in the margins. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us on nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, please remember that if you're hanging around in the backwoods of Alaska around playful foxes, bring a spare hat along, okay? Put a chain around my neck and leave me anywhere. Let me be. Oh, let him be. Oh, let me be. Oh, let him be. Your teddy bear.